Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. here this morning. What a privilege it is to be uh, God's family gathered together. And uh, just thanks for being here, being part. I do want to encourage everybody who calls Faith Lakeside home, especially those of you who are leading ministries or oversee things and are invested in things, uh, to consider joining us this evening. We're going to be talking about Sunday school and what it might be able to do for us as a church and the impact it might have on our church fellowship. So I want to encourage you to come and join. It, I'm, we're going to have hamburgers. We've got some veggie burgers. Those of you who are Friday night, same difference as it was, right? So uh, you can repeat. It's like leftovers, just better. It's fresh. And, um, but we're going to have mac and cheese and baked beans and salad and, and, and stuff. So you don't need to bring anything but your willingness to discuss the concept of Sunday school. And some of you might say, well, I don't have anything to say about that. Well, that's okay. We still want to have you come and listen because uh, in hearing, you might have something to say. So essentially, if you call Faith Lakeside home, you're welcome to join us. We'll have uh, the big uh, Faith Kids room. We'll have videos playing in there. Uh, there'll be space for the kids to play. We're, it's not like formal. We're not going to be like quiet and prayerful the whole time. And so, uh, the, the, you know, kids are welcome to come and just be part of stuff no matter what. So Another quick announcement, card ministry is this coming Monday at 4 p.m. So if you are crafty, or even if you're not, uh, men, women, children, come and Linda will show you how to make the great cards that she and others send out uh, for birthdays and anniversaries and encouragement. So card ministry this Monday, so tomorrow, 4 p.m. in the women's ministry room. So, oh wow, this is weird. All of my slides say that it's Sunday school discussion. Hmm. It looks okay up there. The problem is, is I don't know what the slide says. It's certainly not in a, anybody's fault uh, here. So technology, it's either um, a beautiful thing or a terrible thing. So uh, one, I'll, I'm going to talk a little bit while I try and fix my iPad here too. So Sunday night, or Sunday. This last Friday night, 1829 met, and so thanks for everybody who attended. It's we're, we're uh, having it again this coming Friday night, except instead of in the fellowship hall, you guys will be meeting in the big classroom and the youth area. Why, you say? Well, because homeschoolers will be in the uh, sanctuary and fellowship hall for their end-of-year festivities, so um, we need to make room for them so that they can use the facility just that one time a year that they do. Man, it's cool. So if I seem like I'm flustered and don't know what's going on, it's because on my little screen here, every slide looks the same. And so I don't know what they say. So this will be interesting to say the least. I'm going to change remote controls. Oh, good times. So we are continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark titled The Christ. Um, you know what's, what's good about this kind of stuff? When things go wrong, it helps us to realize 
that uh, on, a, on a Monday through Saturday, if things go long, wrong in our life, that it is not abnormal, it is not ungodly, it is not unspiritual. Here we are on Sunday morning, and the prince of the power of the air is still trying to uh, have his way with us and our technology and things. So everything's well. Yeah. No, it's all good. Um, I, I pretend like I know what I'm saying most of the time anyway, so this is, this is all good. Um, so every time I click, it, the next slide will be as big a surprise for me as it is for you. Uh, the only difference is, is that I've studied the things that will be on the slide and even prepared the slide. So remember that the whole point of the Gospel of Mark is to bring us to the realization that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And, and that is what Mark's goal in writing to us in is he uh, is recalling and recording the, the thoughts of the Apostle Peter and all the things that Peter has seen and experienced walking with Christ. And so uh, Mark is just this beautiful, intimate picture of Jesus. Now, last week we talked about the great commandment. And it's that, that twofold, love God and love others, that Jesus gives. And Jesus, in, in answering the question, which is the greatest commandment, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And Jesus really tells us that to love is to walk with him uh, in emotion, in personality, in intellect, and, and with our very bodies that we obey and that we honor him. And, and then gives us the second part of this great commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that really boils down to, the Apostle Paul clarifies it in a couple of other passages where he says, you know, which of you um, doesn't feed yourself? And we can look around the room, especially at some of us, and know we, we feed ourselves well. Um, you know, I'm myself included, I am the chief of all sinners, and I feed myself well. Which of you does not clothe yourself? Um, thankfully, everyone here has put on clothes this morning. Um, right. And so it's, it's a good thing, you see, that to love others is to meet their basic needs, at least. But it's, it's also to point them to Christ, ultimately. So this is where Jesus left us last week. So it brings us to Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 44. So I encourage you to open up your Bible or open up your Bible app to Mark chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at verses 35 through 44. First, we're going to focus on a small section, verses 35 through 37, to just kind of set the stage and, and, and begin to see what Jesus is talking about and how he's helping others to understand who he is. So here in Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37, it reads like this. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said... How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him the Christ, Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So what we've got here is this... Um, this short passage that gives us a picture of Jesus beginning to teach the crowds a little bit more in depth as to who he is. That as he makes these claims to being the, the Christ, the son of David, 
He also wants them to understand that there is more to him than just fulfilling some prophecies about a coming king. That he also possesses in himself and in who he is another important component, and that is he is the son of God. And so he begins to ask some questions. Now, up until this point, every interaction Jesus has had with the crowds has begun with a question from someone in the crowd, usually a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a scribe. Remember, the Pharisees are um, the, 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 the ones with all the rules. The Sadducees are the ones who reject supernatural things. The scribes are the everyday handlers of God's word, the Old Testament, and they would have been essentially pastors in some ways. They would have been legal experts. And so normally these interactions precipitate from a question from a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a scribe. But this time, Jesus is the one asking the question. Jesus is the one directing the discussion because Jesus has a very important point to make to everyone who's listening. And it is that he is the son of David, but that he, as the son of David, the Christ, is also something more than they had expected. He is also the son of God. And so he asks this question, and, and really it, it hinges on a couple of things. First, we want to understand who the scribes are. These are the ones who were doing a lot of the interpretation of the prophecy. And scribes, as we see them in this culture, they are unpaid experts, uh, Bible teachers, who live off of raised support. So if we had a scribe, he would look a lot like a pastor, a staff member who says, here's the things that God has directed me and given me and uh, given me the privilege of knowing. Let me support you spiritually. Would you do me the favor of supporting me financially? And what's interesting is that in the first century culture, in first century Judaism, Supporting a scribe was considered a good work that God would bless. So it, it was a, if you support a scribe, you're doing a meritorious work, earning God's favor, and he will bless you in response to supporting a scribe. Now, the interesting thing is that um, I think maybe the scribes potentially used this to take advantage of people. And um, it, it's not like we ever see anything like that in our modern culture, people who handle the word of God, who use their spiritual authority to manipulate and get extra from others. We don't see that, right? Um, yeah, no, right. Um, but if you, will, um, if you will just give me your credit card number, I promise God will bless you. Um, like a hundredfold of what I spend on it. Uh, so let's just do that today. If everyone would pass your credit cards forward, and, right, never mind. Uh, bad joke. And, and really, a terrible thing to see spiritual leaders abusing God's word like that. But what's interesting as well is that scribes, they were known for helping widows and others manage their estates. And, and also, they, were, they dealt with other law-related issues. And so some of you might go, well, law, like what? Well, law in this era spiritual and legal in the Jewish culture kind of blended together. And so the spiritual leaders were also the legal scholars because the law was essentially God's word. And so when you wanted to deal with uh, estates, you wanted to deal with land issues, you wanted to deal with uh, issues of adoption or inheritance, that the scribes were the ones who dealt with that. 
and, and they dealt with uh, orphans and, and, and others as far as managing funds or dealing with their legal issues. And so scribes are very prominent in this first century culture. They have a lot of responsibilities and a lot going on for them and in them. And Jesus is specifically calling them out in a sense by saying, asking these questions, how can the scribes, these people with so much authority who are so respected and know so much, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, the son of David, we need to understand something about what Jesus is saying and what the expectation is here. Jesus is saying there is this promised person, a physical descendant of David, who will be king of Israel forever, and he was called the son of David. If you guys remember back just a few weeks ago, as Jesus was coming from Jericho to Jerusalem, just outside of the gates of Jericho, he encountered a blind man whose name was son of Timaeus. That's all we know of him, Bartimaeus. And that blind man had said to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And so we, we see that the people of the time, even at the triumphal entry, they're praising Jesus as the son of David or as the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And so we see that they have called Jesus the son of David. They are acknowledging him as this promised perfect king who would come to restore the kingdom of Israel and bring people back to God. And, and so where we see this is, is a, a number of different prophecies, including one in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. Excuse me, verse 12. And there's actually a big chunk of scripture in here where David is, is um, being, God is establishing a covenant or a promise, a new contract with King David, the second king of Israel, the, the really good king in many ways. And, and he says that to David that he, there's going to be a descendant from David who will be king forever. And it's specifically here in chapter 7, verse 12 of 2 Samuel, in which... God says this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And then it goes on to say in the following verses, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so God had promised King David that there would be a descendant that God himself would treat as a son. And, 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 and that son would see God as a father and, and that his reign would last forever and ever. His kingdom would never end. And we see a little bit of this prophecy fulfilled in David's son Solomon. He has the privilege of building the temple for God, the house for God. But clearly this prophecy is not fulfilled in total. And so by the time of Jesus, the Jewish people are still looking for this perfect king who will be a descendant, a physical descendant of David, who will be king over all Israel and establish peace and prosperity. And we see it over again in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. That it's reiterated. Most of you know uh, this one. You, you can almost say it um, from memory. You know, his, the, a, a child is promised. He'll be born to you. A wonderful counselor, prince of peace, mighty God, everlasting father. 
It's this promise being expounded on and explained. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. We see this prophecy again, and and God says, uh, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. In other words, an offshoot of his lineage. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. And so what we see is this promise throughout the Old Testament. And these aren't the only examples. There's a whole list. I could have made slides and slides of prophecies and promises that God makes to his people, starting with David, that there will be a perfect promised king who will come and establish life and peace for Israel and all of the world. And so by the time we get to Jesus, they're looking for this king, they're anticipating this king, and Jesus asks the question, how is it that the son of David is just a man when David actually calls him my Lord? So here's what what Jesus says. He quotes scripture. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, we read phrases like this. The Lord said to my Lord, look, that's not getting a very good grade on a paper uh, here today. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Who are we even referring to? So we, we take a look back and see where this is from. King David wrote a psalm. You guys know where the psalms are kind of halfway between the beginning and the end, right there in the middle of your Bible. King David wrote a psalm, which was just a song or a poem, in which this was written. And so Jesus is saying, David wrote this, the Holy Spirit inspired him, and David wrote this phrase, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Well, it's important that we understand exactly what David said. Because when we read it in English, we just see Lord, Lord, and we wonder, what is he even talking about? But when we go back to the original language it was written in, we go back to Psalm 110, which is where this actually comes from, this is what we see. It says, the Lord, Yahweh, the the, the one true God, the great God that was in the burning bush, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of the people of Israel, He says to my Lord, Adonai, which is a word that can actually be translated Lord God as well. So what we have is David is telling us there will come a time where God himself will say to the person that will be the promised king, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And these are kind of, some of us, we sit and look, okay, so, so we got some word games going on here. But what we've really got is a statement that there will come a day, is what David is prophesying, when God himself will say to this great king that is to come, I'm going to put you in charge of everything. But these, these two little words, my Lord, that David uses, David is acknowledging that this coming king is greater than him. Now, when you're king, put in place by God, who is the, who's greater than you? 
Will, will your children be greater than you, be in charge of you? No, they're your descendants. They're the ones who will be submitted to you. And so this prophecy is that the coming king will be more than just a man. He will be in a status, in the status of superior to David, the king put in charge by God, and the only one over a God-given king is God himself. So this passage essentially says, there's going to come a day, bless you, where God says to God, that's not in there, but somebody sneezed, and um, where God says to God, I'm going to establish you as king over all of creation. So Jesus says, David himself calls him the Christ, Lord. So how is he the Christ, David's son? Everybody, what Jesus wants us to understand is that he is the descendant of David, but he's also something more. He's the son of God. Now, this is some of that enigmatic teaching we see in, in all of the Gospels. And what we need to understand is there probably was a moment where Jesus sat down with his disciples and explained this in a little more detail. But we don't get that in the gospel. What we end up getting, though, is this beautiful statement of Jesus really declaring himself as God. Declaring himself to be the ultimate authority as established by the Father. And so... Some people say, well, Jesus never said he was God, and I, I beg to differ. In simple statements like this, he says, I'm more than a man. I am God. I am the authority, the ultimate authority. Yahweh, the Father, has made me, Adonai, the king over all of creation. And so while this is a bit of a, a sideways approach, it would have been nicer in some ways if Jesus had just said, hey, all you dumb people, I'm the son of God. I'm, in, I'm God incarnate. I'm the second person of the Trinity. Would you worship me? It would be much easier if he was just blunt like that. But Jesus kind of wants us to be curious, and Jesus wants us to investigate, and Jesus wants us to dig deeper. He doesn't want us to just go, oh, okay, and then live our lives, but he wants us to be set on fire and curious and wondering and seeking. And this is his means of teaching us that he is the son of David. He is this promised king, the Christ, but he is the son of God as well. So we, we get this one little teaching outing, this one little moment, and then Jesus continues to speak to the crowds who will just, they're, they're starting to really crave hearing him teach. And he, he continues to teach in verses 38 through 40, and he says this, and, and you're going to love this, it's, it's some of my favorite. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and, and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So Jesus first makes this declaration in his teaching that he is the Christ, he's the son of the living God. It's a little veiled, but everybody who was there understands what he's trying to say. The scribes don't have things right. Here's what the truth is, and here's who I really am. And then he goes on an attack against these very scribes. He had led people to question, and he says to them, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. So we'll start with that. Scribes walked around in long robes. In this day and age, most of the scribes would have been wearing white robes or 
you could even call them like a toga. No, toga, toga. Everybody gets their old white sheet and puts it on. But, but it would have been much finer than that. It would have been a fine white robe. And at the bottom of the robe, they would have had long white tassels. And so if a scribe was walking through the temple or the marketplace, you would immediately know that they were a scribe. Because they shine bright and white walking through the crowds. Most everybody else in this day and age would have worn muted earth tones, or if they had some resources, they would have purchased colored garments as colorful as they could afford in, in order to really just be somebody. And, and these scribes, though, they love to walk around in their long robes. They love for everybody to know that there's something special about them. And they love greetings in the marketplaces. And, and, and where this flows from is, is there was a practice. When you encountered a scribe, you didn't just say, morning, Fred. It was, it was more a, 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 oh, rabbi, or, which means teacher, or even to address them as father, or to address them as, as leader, that, that, that their title was everything. Now, I'm going to make a little bit of a, a statement, and, and you can agree or disagree, that's okay, but I don't like it when leaders in the church use their titles. And, and, and what I mean by that is, is um, I, I have the privilege of being the pastor at this church, and, and I get to serve there. But when I introduce myself, I introduce myself as Michael. And, and you might go, well, why would you do that? I mean, don't, didn't you earn that respect to get to be called pastor? No. Pastor, for, for me, and to me, is a relationship. It's something that if I get to be that for you because I've earned that privilege, man, I'm, I'm, I'm overjoyed. But I'm not going to insist that you call me something that you're not. It'd be like calling every man in the room, Father, are they all your dad? <laughs> no, if you were wondering. Um, if you, you know, missed high school biology, no, they're not. Um, it, it, it's the same. I, I can't tell you how many times I've walked into a, a meeting of pastors and, and introduced myself. And, hi, I'm Michael. Hello, I'm Pastor Fred. Pastor? You're not my pastor. What are you talking about, dude? I mean, that's just nuts. This is kind of the same thing here. It, it, it's this, this notion of hierarchy. It's this notion of, of standing. Now, do we respect and honor each other's positions as we come into relationship with one another? Absolutely. You know, you, you call your doctor, doctor, maybe. Uh, you know, you, 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 call, you call your mom, mom. You call your dad, dad. You can call your pastor, pastor. But he should never insist that you call him pastor or, heaven forbid, father. We have one father. It's God. You know, he, heaven forbid, bishop or elder. Or, I, I mean, just, just, my goodness, these titles that, that lift people up instead of honoring God. And this is what the, the scribes loved, was this, I get to walk through the marketplace and the temple in my bright white robes with the glowing tassels and have everybody call me rabbi or father. And he said, these scribes, they love to have the best seats in the synagogues. Now you might think a synagogue with wooden and stone benches and no air conditioning, where could the best seat even be? I mean, for me, the best seat would be not in that room. But 
in, in, in this culture, in this day and age, in a synagogue, the practice was for a, a large meeting room, and then at one end would be the, the, the place where the Torah was read, the scrolls of the scripture were read, and the scrolls would be unrolled, and they would read from them, and then, and then the teacher would give a little bit of a thought or a devotional, and, and, and that was much of what the services looked like, and guess where the scribes sat? Right behind the Torah, so that everyone could see their bright white robes and just how spiritual they were. And, and, and this, is, this is what they loved with the seat of honor right behind God's word, where it, it was a picture of we are the most important men out of everyone. Even God's word affirms us. <laughs> when I was a younger pastor, a youth pastor, um, first church I served in, we started out sitting on the platform during worship. That's, that's how it was. I mean, in, in, um, in, in my father-in-law's church, when Shelly and I were first married and I got to guest preach or something, we'd sit up on the platform. Oh, do you know how awkward that is? I mean, I, don't, I never even knew how to put my legs. Good thing I wasn't wearing a skirt. It would have been awkward not just because I was wearing a skirt, but yeah, I just, I couldn't figure out how to sit properly, you know? And, and I don't think that it was meant as just this, this look at me kind of thing, but that's what it felt like to me. It felt like everybody's supposed to be seeing how spiritual I am. I very quickly found a way to get off the platform. And you'll notice I, I maybe will be up front, but oftentimes I'd rather just be wandering around uh, much more than than sitting up front. Yeah, if anybody puts a throne up here, I am not sitting in it. That's for Jesus. But the, the thing is, is, the scribes wanted everybody to see them. They wanted everybody to understand how great they were. They wanted the places of honor at feasts. If you were having a celebration at your home, you're having a barbecue or a cookout, it's the 4th of July, you want to make sure you invite a scribe or two or three and you give them the best seats at the table. They get the good ribs, you know, not the burned ones, not the dried out stuff. You are going to make sure that the scribes that are invited and honored. And scribes love this, Jesus says. He says that's all they're about. Their whole faith is about the glory. It's about the, the, the prominence. It's about the power. It's about the titles. It's about the, everybody looking at them and going, oh, I, to be a scribe. Wouldn't it be great to be a scribe? And then he condemns them and he says this, they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. So he warns us, he says, people who like uh, fancy things and fancy titles and, and uppity places to sit, they're the same people we see taking advantage of their authority. Remember I told you earlier that the scribes were oftentimes like the lawyers of the day. They would handle the, um, the money and the resources of a widow because when her husband died, if they, there were resources and there were no children to pass them on to, then she was not able to, to do much with it. She would not have great legal standing and so a scribe would take authority over what she had. And of course it was an honor for her to be able to give some of her possessions to the scribe and support him for the work that he was doing. But it was a common practice for scribes to, 
start skimming off the top to start taking advantage of the widows. The very ones that God in his commands says that we're supposed to be taking care of, the scribes, would be using for their own gain. And for pretense, in other words, to make themselves look better, they make long prayers. I, um, I, I got to be honest, sometimes I struggle to pray for more than just a couple of minutes. And, and I would like to attribute that to my ADHD and too much caffeine, right? But th the truth is, is sometimes it's like I've said all I need to say and I'm trusting you for the rest, God. And I think our, our spiritual lives, we can sometimes get in a place where we're like a scribe and think the more words, the more better. And Jesus is saying that, listen, if all you're doing is speaking words for the sake of speaking words, you're nothing better than a scribe. You're just pretentious. You're just uppity. Now, some people can pray forever, and you know they're not pretentious. You know that every last moment is heartfelt. Every last word is meaningful and rich. And so we should never condemn someone who is heartfelt in their prayer, and it lasts a while. But listen, you don't have to keep making up words if you've said all you need to say. So there's this balance of, if you can pray for hours, do. If you can pray for moments, do, but make sure it's heartfelt and make sure it's honest. He says, those who love to walk around in long robes, have their greetings in the marketplace, the best seats and the places of honor, the ones who take advantage of others and their faith is nothing more than a pretense to earn for themselves the things that they desire, they will receive the greater condemnation. He essentially says that these kinds of people, they're going to get all their reward right now and they will be judged harshly in eternity. So these things, these robes, the wealth, the greetings, the notoriety, the best seats, the power, the places of honor, the influence. If you have a faith like a scribe and these are the things that you seek, this will be your reward and nothing more. I mean, Jesus is really speaking some pretty harsh words to the scribes and to those who are listening and to us about perspective on these kinds of things, especially if you're using faith to achieve these things. This will be your reward and nothing more. There's a blog. Uh, it actually tracks what tennis shoes preachers wear. And, and you might laugh but there's actually a market for collector tennis shoes. Like Air Jordans of certain eras can fetch up to five or $6,000 for a mint-in-the-box pair. And there is a, a, a blogger who tracks some of the larger church pastors and what shoes they wear. And I won't name names, but... There are at least a half dozen pastors he tracks regularly at some of these mega churches that wear shoes, tennis shoes, that cost upward of two to $5,000. Like just as part of their outfit. Now, if anybody's wondering, um, these, these were clearance North Face off of REI's website. I used my member rewards. I cashed those in. Um, and they were $56. So, um, and they're nice, but uh, I'm not making any blogs.
But the whole point is, is this guy's trying to point out the hypocrisy of Christians using their positions of authority and seeking out only these things. Wealth and notoriety and power and influence. And Jesus says, if that's what you seek, that's all you'll get. Because what is to come for you is only judgment. Now, it's easy to look at blogs and people who wear $5,000 shoes and go, sinners. But we have to look at ourselves honestly as well, don't we? How do we use our faith? Do we walk into work holier than thou because you've got on a cross or a Christian t-shirt? <laughs> In high school, I was terrible. I had one. It had Buddha on a cross. It was like Buddha didn't die for our sins. And man, I would strut through my you know, high school like I'm a good Christian. That's right. Buddha didn't die for our sins. Jesus did. Then I'd get angry and cuss or, you know, or I wasn't really good in dating relationships. I took advantage. Man, what are we using our faith for? What kind of person are we seeking to be? Jesus says, beware of all of these things because if this is what you seek, if this is what you're using your faith for, that's all you're going to get. Because you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand right relationship with God. Instead, you're using it as a tool to achieve your own desires. And then Jesus and his disciples have another encounter that helps them to understand what it is to really believe. So, Verses 41 through 44 share a story many of us are familiar with. And it says this, And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So Jesus condemns the scribes and calls them out for, for their misuse of faith, for their hypocrisy, for their seeking after all of the wrong things in the name of their religion, and then he has this encounter with his disciples in which he watches an old widow put in a small amount of money. So we, he's the, to set the stage, we see this picture of uh, they're sitting down opposite the treasury and they're watching people putting money in the offering box. And what's interesting is this, this treasury would have been 13 different boxes. And, and I've got a picture here on this, this next one that would have looked something like this. A big box down at the bottom, and then a trumpet kind of funnel up at the top. And, and so you would walk by, and they were all lined up, and, and about six or seven of them were designated giving. Um, you know, you guys are familiar with that, right? You know, building fund, and to help the orphans and widows, and to feed the hungry. So designated giving. And then about six of these 13, uh, traditionally we understand we're just general uh, giving, sacrificial giving, above and beyond. And so it wasn't uncommon for people to walk by and to make it well known what they were putting into the treasury. 
you know, because it would make a lot of noise. Anybody ever done Coinstar at the grocery store? You know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, it's just like forever as those coins clank around. And so if you had lots to give, you wanted to make sure that everybody could hear you dropping it in. And, and some of these people were able to give large amounts of money, but then Jesus and his disciples see a poor widow, and she comes and she puts in two small copper coins. And scripture tells us it makes a penny. And we kind of think about it, well, okay, a penny. But I, I want to put it into perspective, maybe what folks were giving. So these two small copper coins, the, the word that is used here in the Greek there uh, is a, a lepton is what they are. And it really means like a flake or just a tiny little piece of metal. And so this, this copper coin, this lepton, it was worth one 128th of a denarius. You guys remember, what's a denarius? Well, it is a day's wage, a silver coin, a day's wage. Jesus had handled one earlier in his times here at the temple. And it was, um, uh, had, had the, the Tiberius Caesar's face on one side and then him sitting on a throne on the other side. Uh, and, and so a lepton was worth one one twenty-eighth, one hundred and twenty-eighth of a denarius. So it's 128th, one 128th of a day's wages. So in, in modern America, it'd be about eight minutes uh, worth of work, right? You know, just, just, just almost nothing. And, and if we look at the, the next big coin up, an arius, which is the biggest gold coin, or actually, excuse me, the smallest gold coin that was minted at the time, it's one 3,200th 3,200, I don't know how to say that without messing up. Uh, it's really small compared to the gold coins. And Jesus is saying, lots of people are coming by and they're putting in gold and silver, big coins, big gifts, and here comes this widow and she gives two of these. Two of these leptons. So one 64th of a day's wages she gives. And Jesus doesn't say she just gave because that's what was in her pocket. How much was this for her? What well, was her everything? These, these, two, these two little coins would have maybe, maybe, if she were lucky and scored just the right sale, gotten her one small, meager meal for the day. Just one small, meager meal for the day. And so Jesus, he, he calls the disciples together and he says, I want you to see what this woman has done. These two little coins... It's more than everybody else has put in that offering box. Because everybody else is giving a portion of their wealth. They're giving a little bit. But this widow has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Just two little flakes of copper is all it was. But Jesus says it is a greater gift, a greater sacrifice than gold coins and silver coins. Her, her two little coins were nothing monetarily, but they were everything sacrificially. And this is the standard by which Jesus evaluates us and our faith. You see, we could be like the scribes and be like, hey, I believe because it benefits me. 
Or we could be like the widow, and we say, I believe, and I give all that I have. And that's good enough. I believe, and I give all that I have, and I trust God for the rest. I trust Him to care for me. I don't, need a, I, don't, I don't need notoriety. I don't need power. I don't need flashy clothes. I don't need the best kicks. But what I need is a relationship with God, and what I'm going to be willing to give is everything. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-5, through 5, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth. And the church in Corinth had been taking up an offering for other churches. Specifically the churches in Jerusalem. We see, and, and here's what Paul says to the church in Corinth. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Can you, to, to, to understand that extreme poverty results in generosity, that isn't what happens oftentimes, and it's especially not what happens in 21st century America. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. We can have a, a, a mindset of, I follow God for all the good I get. Or we can have a mindset of, I love Jesus, He loves me, He saved me, I will give all I can out of faith. For the privilege of lifting up His name, for the privilege of living for Him. And this is a shift in perspective. A lot of sermons that end with the mindset of giving will give you the notion that if you give, God will bless you. And I'm going to tell you, if you give, God will bless you, but it might not be money. In fact, there's a really good chance it won't be more money. It could be more suffering. Oh, wouldn't that be a blessing? Yes, in God's economy, it is. It can be. Here's the standard when we look at the widow, when we look at the, the New Testament, when we look at what Jesus asks of us. A lot of us are of the mindset that to give, to have a right perspective, to not be like those nasty, dirty scribes, that we should give some percentage of our income. We should give some standard. We, and, you know, we go with the 10%, the 20 the 30 the 90%. That's where the really faithful people are. Is not, some of you are shaking your head. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, a little bit. Because here's what God actually says to us in the New Testament. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. In other words, if you give for the needs of others specifically, then when the time comes for your needs to be met, they will be met by the gifts of others. But here's what Paul says to the church in Corinth about giving ultimately. He says this, each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The widow gave everything because she loved God. The scribes and the rich people gave very little in comparison to what they had because their faith was just a transaction. They gave what they had to. They gave what the law required. 
because their faith was just a transaction. And Paul and Jesus, they're calling us to an understanding that what we give in this life to the church, to other believers, to build the kingdom of God, it's not supposed to be a transaction where we get something for it and you know, we give what we have to, but instead it is to seek God's face, to see what God would have uh, us do, and then to do it cheerfully. Cheerfully. And God is able to make all a grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in all the wealth and big houses and flashy cars you might like because you gave. No. He actually says, when you give, when you give as God leads, when you give like the widow, when you give not as a transaction to try and make God happy, but as an act of sacrifice with a right heart, not to say, God, if I do this, do, will you do that for me? But instead to just give. Paul says, when you give cheerfully as God has led you, whether it is a little bit from your little bit or a lot from your lot or a little bit from your lot or a, a lot from your little bit. When you give as God has led and give cheerfully, all grace will abound to you. In other words, every good gift that you don't deserve that he has planned for you will abound to you so that you will have all sufficiency in all things at all times so that you can give more and work harder for the kingdom of God. <laughs> the promise is, as you give, you will be blessed with what you need to give more. And not money, necessarily, but good works and faithfulness. Here's where I kind of want to land for the day. Two things to walk away with. Number one, Jesus' first interaction with us today to understand that he is the Christ. He's the promised king, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. We can find him all throughout that Old Testament from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to the end of Malachi. There are prophecies about him over and over and over and over again. And he is the promised king and he is the incarnate son of God, the only one who can make all of those promises come true. After the flesh, completely like us and a descendant of David, after the Spirit, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And then the second big picture between the scribes and the widow, between the, the big handfuls of gold coins and the two little uh, copper coins, I want you to see the difference between a flashy, dead religion. One that has all the shine, but no effect. For eternity versus a sacrificially lived relationship with God where you give as the Lord leads whether it's two copper coins and that's all you have or 10% or 20% or 5% or heck whatever he lays on your heart today you give it sacrificially and cheerfully and understand it's a part of being in relationship with him part of giving to him so Jesus is the Christ the son of God you have a choice. You can have a flashy, dead religion, or you can have a right perspective, like the widow, like the givers in Corinth, and sacrificially give of yourself, your time, your talents, your resources, in order to walk in relationship with this Jesus, the Christ, 
the Son of God. As the worship team comes forward, I just want you to, to begin to think about what it is you might need to apply in your life. Is your religion, is your walk with God, is your faith, is it all flash and practice? Or is it a genuine relationship? And so uh, to, to evaluate that, to, to revisit that, to decide, do I need to do more, do less, pray harder, sacrifice more, stop wearing flashy shoes? I, I mean, where are you when it comes to your walk with Jesus the Christ, the Son of God? Let's pray together and then we'll sing. Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for this time. May we earnestly and honestly look at ourselves in, in, in light of who you sent for us. You sent for us this man, Jesus, a descendant of King David, who was also your son, equal with you, one with you, of the same essence as you. This Jesus, the Son of God, he asks of us nothing in order to earn salvation, save a simple belief in who he is and what he's done. But he does ask once we've come into relationship, how are we going to live it? Flashy and empty, or sacrificial and humble. So this morning, Father, would you take and, and, and by your spirit, would you pry into our hearts and help us to understand why we're even here this morning? Why we even bothered to get out of bed? If it was just out of empty duty and have to, then we're no better than the scribes. If it was out of genuine passion, then we're like the widow giving sacrificially. If it's somewhere in between, help us to, to discern why we walk with you, how we walk with you, what we give of ourselves to you. To make an honest assessment and then to resolve to be more like the widow. May more of us give more of ourselves to you completely that you might be glorified in your kingdom, my friend. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your love. In the name of Christ, we pray this
is worth following, he's worth serving, he's worth surrendering and sacrificing to. I just want to encourage you to weigh who you are in response to what he's already done and how much he loves you. Weigh what you're giving in service and in sacrifice against who he is and what he's done. May he bless you this week. May you know the presence of his spirit as you walk with him encourage you to join your church family in things like 
Tard ministry tomorrow at 4 down in the ladies' Bible study room. Bible study tomorrow night, continuing in 1 Thessalonians. Women's ministry meets Wednesday night at 6.30. Students, everybody, it's uh, 7th through 12th grade, Thursday night at 6.30. Friday night down in the kids, big kids classroom and the youth room. So lots going on this week to grow together, to connect together. And of course, everybody's invited to join tonight and help us to discern next steps for our fellowship. So God bless. Love you all. If you need anything, I'll be up front as we close out today and uh, just hope to see you throughout the week.